Um, and if you're the exception, congratulations. Um, you did it. I sure do. And everyone I've ever talked to to varying degrees has some trust issues. See, life experience has taught us to be pretty skeptical and to not trust others, or at least don't trust them fully. And often it's for good reasons, right? Our very nature, apart from Jesus, is sinfully distrusting of God. Naturally, we don't trust God even though he's really the only one worth trusting. But if you boil down following Jesus to one word, and you see this over and over and over in Scripture, it's this, faith. Or, better put in our modern day lingo, trust. Following Jesus is all about trust. We do this initially when we trust in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, but then we spend the rest of our lives following Jesus, learning and relearning and learning again how to trust him. We're in Luke chapter 17 this morning, so I invite you to turn there if you have a Bible or an app, be using the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. But simply put, Luke 17 is about two words, trust God. Trust God. There's a lot going on in this chapter, but you could boil it all down to that. So he starts in verse 1 with talking about other people's shortcomings, and he encourages us to trust others, or trust him with other people's shortcomings. So verse 1, Jesus, he said to his disciples, he was talking to the Pharisees, now he's talking to those who are close to him, following him. He says, offenses will certainly come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So verses 1 to 4 here are all about trusting God with other people's shortcomings. Trusting God means trusting Him with the punishment for other people's offenses. That's verses 1 and 2. Trust Him with the punishment for other people's offenses. Clearly, verse 2, it says that God will take care of the punishment. It'd be better if they had a millstone, which was a large stone that would, if you, it got attached to you and you were thrown into the sea, you would drown. So Jesus is saying it would be better for you to drown than to face the punishment that God will have for you. He'll do something worse than drowning to punish them. So you better believe that punishment is safe with God. And it says that over those, these little ones who stumble, for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. What is he talking about? Who is he talking about? He's talking about newer believers. He's not talking about children. And here's how I know that. If you look at the parallel passages in Matthew 18 and Mark 9, it's referring to believers in the context, and it is here as well. He's talking to his disciples. So don't get hung up. Some people have made some applications here regarding children, but this is not about children. This is saying, for anyone who causes people to go astray who are following Jesus, and he says about them in verse 3, it's a shame that the, the 
the verse marker wasn't placed uh, a sentence later. It should have been. It says, be on your guard. The verse markers, by the way, weren't inspired by God. Humans put those in there. So be on your guard. That has to do with people who lead other people astray. Be on your guard. People will try to lead, especially newer believers, astray. And Jesus is saying, be aware of it and guard against it from even happening in the first place. But Jesus' point is this. Be on your guard, but trust God with their punishment because he's going to do something worse than drowning. He can take care of it. Be like Jesus at the end of his life who, when he was insulted, did not insult in return. But First Peter says he did what? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. God is going to take care of it. Yes, be on your guard. But you can trust God with other people's shortcomings and with their punishment. He goes on in verses 3 and 4 and, and he says essentially this, trust God with other people's shortcomings. But as you do it, don't be passive It's not a passive thing, trusting God. It's quite active, and it's active, he says here in verse 3, by rebuking others. Here's what rebuke is. I know we hear that word, and it sounds super harsh, but let's define what Jesus is actually talking about. He's talking about this. He's talking about in love, trying to win someone over. You're not punishing them. You're trusting God with punishment. You're trusting God with consequences. He can deal with that. You're dealing with trying to help them through in in a respectful and honest way. Rebuke in two words. Respectful honesty. Pastor Ray Ortland, who has been really helpful to me, I don't know him personally, but the things he's written and put out, says this, he, he gives an, uh, an example of how to have a conversation where you're rebuking someone, and I, this was really helpful to me, I hope it is for you as well. He says, go to them and say, hey, that, you know, this is an awkward conversation, it's a little scary to me, maybe problematic for you, but in our meeting Tuesday night when you said such and such, I was blinded by that. I didn't expect that of you, and I, I think that was wrong, and here's why, and then you share some scripture And you explain why you think that was wrong in the sight of God and you try to win them over. I love that description because he's describing rebuking not in a way that is unkind or disrespectful. No yelling. You're not hoping they're walking away feeling like they got beat up. Instead, rebuke means you are respectful and you're honest in order to win them over in love. It certainly doesn't feel good. No one likes to be rebuked, right? But they should know at the end of the day that you actually love them. So trusting God with other people's shortcomings isn't passive. It means sometimes it's active through rebuke and it's also active through continued forgiveness, he's saying in verse 4. Now, let me qualify it and say that Jesus is not saying to never set up boundaries or have space with people. Remember verse 3, he said, be on your guard. 
So if someone is unapologetically, unashamedly coming back and sinning against you and treating you like trash over and over, don't get Jesus wrong. You don't roll over. You set up good boundaries. Okay? But it's a different story. It's a different story if they're coming to you and genuinely repenting. Boundaries are necessary. There's other teachings in the Bible about that. It's saying in everyday relationships and in everyday situations, by and large, the remedy, he's saying, is to choose to forgive and pursue restored relationship. He is saying the same person in your life might hurt you twice in one day. Spouses, you relate. If they're asking for forgiveness again in the same day, do it. Here's what's hard about this teaching. People will sin against you multiple times in one day. And people will genuinely apologize multiple times in the same day. This will happen with your spouse. This will happen with your kids. This will happen with your parents. This will happen with your coworkers. This will happen with your friends. And this will certainly happen with others in your church family even. But the question is not if it will happen, but when people sin against you multiple times a day, will you choose to forgive them like God has forgiven you? And then will you choose to forgive them like God has forgiven you again? And then will you choose to forgive them like God has forgiven you again? That's what this verse is teaching. That's what Jesus is saying. Trusting God with other people's offenses is a daily choice and a daily battle. The only chance we have at living this out is rehearsing the good news of the gospel to ourselves over and over and over throughout the day so we then can extend that grace and mercy and love over and over and over again to our brothers and sisters. See, because of the cross, his mercy really is new for me, not just every, mo- every morning, but every moment. And therefore, my mercy can be new for him and her and him and her over and over again throughout the day. But if we don't remember the cross, if we don't remember the mercy we've been shown, we don't have a chance. So I want to give you a resource to just have at your fingertips. And I've, I've preached it before, but it's well worth bringing up because this is hard. It's really hard. It's a battle. And this is from Ken Sandy in his book, uh, The Peacemaker. But I'll just get out of the way if you want to. Um, in fact, I would encourage you to. Take a picture of this. This, this. These are very scriptural. If you take a look at his book, The Peacemaker, he lays it out in there. But here's what you're doing when you tell someone you forgive them. You're not just saying, I forgive you. This is what it looks like to live it out. You're saying, I'm not going to dwell on this. That means you're never not, it's not, it's not that you're not going to think about it. You'll think about it again. You're just not going to let it consume your thoughts and ruin your day or theirs. I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. I'm not going to use this against someone. I said I forgave them. Therefore, I'm not going to keep dragging them through the mud. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. If, I, if you said I forgave them, then what are you doing blabbing to others about it? And then four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Now the relationship might need to look different for a time. 
But by and large, I'm not going to let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. This is hard to live out. I have this in a note on my phone, pinned at the top. Why? Because it's hard. It's one thing to say I forgive you. It's another thing to walk in it. But this is what Jesus, this is the type of forgiveness Jesus is calling us to in this passage. And I'm sure as, as I'm speaking even, a person has come to your mind that you've had or are having tension with right now. And I would urge you, and Jesus would urge you, choose right now, today, in the seat you're sitting in, here in this room, choose now that when you think about them again, when you think about that incident again, when you see them next, I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to let it take over my thoughts. I'm not going to bring it up and use it against them. I'm not going to go and blab about it to others and I'm not going to ignore or hide it when I see them. I'm not going to ignore, sorry, ignore them or hide when I see them. And their response, not on you. Praise God. Their response is between them and God. But you live out forgiveness. Treat them with the same grace that God treats you with. See, our mission statement for the family as a family of Christ. Here's the deal. As a family, see, families don't stay together without hard work. Anyone who's ever, we've all been a part of a family, you know it's hard work to stick together. Especially as time goes by. But it's completely worth it for the joy of the camaraderie and the encouragement. But imagine a church family that didn't run when things got hard. Imagine a church family that instead worked hard to work through stuff and to forgive and not just say it, but live it. What an incredibly attractive and head-scratching portrait to an incredibly divided and polarized world right now. Trust God with other people's shortcomings. Walk in forgiveness. Verse 5 the apostles said to the Lord, they hear this about forgiveness and they're like, uh, increase our faith. Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Verses five and six is the key to this whole chapter and really the key to the whole life that's following Jesus. Trust God. See, how could we possibly forgive like Jesus just described and the disciples are saying that? They're, saying, they're asking that very same question. So they're going, Lord, increase our faith. We can't do that. What, you just called us to forgiveness? Yeah, we, we can't live that out. So it's gonna take an act of God for us to live this out. And Jesus goes, no problem, I've got you covered. All you need is just a small amount of trust in me. I want to come back to these verses later, but the point for now is trust. Faith is the key to following Jesus. Let's move to verses 7 through 10. Here he's telling them to trust God with your reward. Verse 7. Which one, which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready, and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you can eat and drink. 
Does he thank that servant because he did what he was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Trust God with your reward. Jesus is saying this essentially, following me is not about you and what you get out of it. It's about the master, not the servant. Let me give you an example. Jesus is saying something like this. It'd be ridiculous for you to be hired by Queen Elizabeth, who just celebrated what? 75 years, I think? 70 years, that's right, of being on the throne. So imagine you were hired by Queen Elizabeth to be her chef. You're her personal chef, and you go in, and you sit down at the table. Here she is, you know, at her big stately throne thing, and you sit down, and you go, all right, what are we having to eat today, Queen Elizabeth? All right, let's do it. Where's the food? That would be ridiculous. Your job is to make the food, not sit down and go, all right, let's eat. No, you don't get to sit with the queen. You were hired to make the food for the queen. It would be ridiculous. And Jesus is saying it would be just as ridiculous to make following him about your rewards. It'd be like going up to heaven and going, cool, you're here, Jesus. Where's my rewards? And Jesus is going, you, you missed it. You missed it. This is about God. This is about me. See, when we make our reward in heaven the focus, we, it actually shows us that we have a heart that's not actually trusting God. Now, don't get me wrong. He's, he's promised us a reward over and over and over in Scripture. I could point to many Scriptures. I'll just read one from Luke. Luke 6, 23. Jesus says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven. That's incredible. That should give us incredible hope and joy and motivation. Rejoice. Leap for joy. Your reward is incredible. It's great in heaven. But it can't be the focus or the reward starts to take the place of Jesus. The reward starts to become God to us. We sang about this earlier in this song, My Portion, which comes straight from Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, which says, Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So don't let the reward become the focus. Trust God with your reward. God is enough. Heaven is about being with him, first and foremost, not the reward. God is enough. He is the reward. Trust him with your reward. He will come through on his promised rewards. Trust him and make it about him. Next we see in verses 11 through 19 that we need to trust God with our blessings or our wins in life. This one's a hard one to stomach, especially for us Americans. Verse 11, while traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he told them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them 
seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God and he fell face down on his feet, at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. We got 10 guys with leprosy. Leprosy was an agonizing, incurable skin disease that forced you into isolation. You were unclean. You could not be around other people except others who had leprosy. And they're begging Jesus, heal us, heal us. And Jesus tells them, hey, go show yourselves to the priests. And we're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Well, they would have understood this. So the the Old Testament law, Leviticus 13, it says that if the priest declares you clean, if you have leprosy, if you're unclean, unceremonially clean, as spelled out by the Old Testament, by the law, if a priest declares you clean, you're no longer isolated. You get your life back if the priest declares you clean. So when Jesus says this to them, they're like, well, we're not cured, but all right. And as they're going... They all get healed. Nine go to the priest and get their lives back and move on. One does not go to the priest, although I'm sure he did later. He goes straight back to Jesus and fell face down at his feet thanking him. Here's the catch. This one ungrateful guy is a Samaritan. Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. They were an an offshoot of the Jews. They believed that the place of worship should be different than Jerusalem. They basically created a new religion from Judaism, which now has different history and different beliefs, and they were at odds with each other. Yet, here's this Samaritan, and he is the only one coming back to worship Jesus. And what did Jesus say saved this Samaritan? Verse 19, his faith, his trust. The Samaritan trusted God to not just heal him. He showed that he trusted Jesus by thanking him once he was healed. What an incredible example to us. This guy who, if, if any of them, we don't know the, the backgrounds, the religions, the, the ethnicities, anything of the rest of these people, But let's say he was the only Samaritan. And it seems like that's what's going on. If anyone was not going to come back and thank Jesus, it would be him. Jesus is a Jew. But yet, he comes back and is worshiping Jesus. He's the only one who really trusted him. See, you and I are blessed by God in undeserving ways. In unthinkable ways, all of the time, you probably don't think about your next meal. You probably have a roof over your head, a house or an apartment. Many of us have vehicles or two or six. Many of us have the luxury of taking off a day of work to go do something we enjoy, to go fishing, to to camp, to read, whatever you enjoy. 
And we all tend to really lean into God and have faith and trust in him when we want something, right? God, I just need $500 more for this boat and I'm banking on you, God. Or we need, I I just need this person to treat me more respectfully. I'm trusting you, God. I just need an uninterrupted night of sleep, right, parents? I'm counting on you, God. I just need gas to be less than $4 a gallon. I'm banking on you, God. I need that, God. First of all, all of those things and more, if God gives them to them, are blessings, not rights. God does not owe you these sorts of things, nor has he promised them to you. Second, if God graciously does give you blessings like these, do we thank him for it? See, it's easy for all of us in affluent America to trust God when we need something, but then not show our devotion and trust if he gives us that thing. Let me share an example with you in my own life. So my TV just stopped working a few months ago. And we had a smaller TV that worked just fine. Much smaller, mind you. But it worked just fine. And I didn't know how or when we were going to pay for a new one. And so I was like, all right, God, I know this isn't that big a deal, but it'd be great if you could help us out. And what seemed like months, but was probably only days, God graciously provided the funds for a new TV. And I did not deserve that. I did not need that. And instead of thanking God, I bought this new one and got all frustrated while setting it up because the Wi-Fi is not connecting to my new smart TV. I didn't think, oh wow, I've never had a smart TV before. This is nice. I didn't think, wow, I have Wi-Fi. That's That's a blessing from the Lord. Didn't think that at all. I was just really frustrated. And I remember in my living room, God gently grabbing my attention and going, Matt, you have internet. You have a TV. And I stopped and repented and thanked God and I saw it for what it was, an undeserved blessing and trusted God once again. Jesus' call is for us to trust in him in all circumstances. And the way that we trust him in the winds and in the blessings is thankfulness, just like this Samaritan leper. Trust God with your blessings. Lastly, we see in this chapter, we need to trust God with Jesus' return. Verse 20 to the end. When he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, see there or see here, don't follow or run after them. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. 
It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man... On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord... They asked him, and he said to them, Where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Real showstopper to end, right? We'll get to explaining that verse in a second. I just think it's fascinating that that's how Jesus ends it. But Jesus is preparing his disciples for the period of redemptive history that we live in now. It's the already not yet period. Jesus already lived. He died. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven, but he hasn't come back and made all things right yet. And essentially he's telling them when this happens, he he throws in here too in verse 25, by the way, I'm going to suffer. He's talking about how he's going to die on a cross. That's going to happen. But after that, once I'm gone, don't trust what other people say about my return. That's what he's saying here. Trust me with what I say about my return. And then he teaches them some fundamental things about his return. And let me just break them down for you. Verses 26 and 27, he's saying, my return will happen on an ordinary day when people don't expect it. Don't try to predict it. And don't trust others who are trying to predict it. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be on an ordinary day when no one is saying, Jesus is coming back today. Verses 28 to 32, he's saying, there's going to be no second chances. He talks about people in Noah's day and in Lot's day from Genesis. And those people ignored God while Noah and Lot turned to God. Now, both of them are not shining examples of godliness if you read those accounts. But their hearts were repentant and turned towards God. Jesus is saying they had no second chance. The people in those days had no second chance. You won't either. So repent and trust in me today. Do not delay. Verse 33 It says, whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. He's saying here, life will not be easy as you follow Jesus before I return. Don't be surprised when it's hard. Don't be surprised that it costs you severely here on earth. But trust me, don't be surprised by it. All things will be made right. You have my word. The last will be first. Hang on, though, till we get there. And lastly, he's teaching in verses 34 to 37 that his return will be obvious. As obvious as two people in bed, one of them, when Jesus returns, gone and with him, the other was not ready, had not repented. Commentator Daryl Bach says this, 
It will be as visible as vultures pointing out dead bodies. This is what verse 37 is about. The, the disciples are asking Jesus, okay, where are you going to return? We want a specific location. We'll go camp out there, right? And he's like, no, 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 no. You missed it. It's not about where. It's the fact that it's going to be obvious and you can't miss it. So don't, it doesn't matter where you're at. And it's going to be as obvious as vultures swarming around a dead body. Everyone notices that. Whoa, there's a bunch of vultures. I wonder what's dead there. And it's a morbid scene because there will be some who are not ready and there will be no second chances. Jesus is saying, trust what I'm saying about my return. Don't trust others. Ultimately, trust me. My timing is perfect and you, if you have repented and are following me, you have nothing to worry about. Jesus has called us is to quit listening to other people's speculations about his return and trust that Jesus' return will be perfect and we've got nothing to be afraid of if we are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we don't have to be worried about a thing. Trust me with my return. Why can we trust him? You can trust him if you are in Christ because you are covered by his blood you are forgiven, you are clean, you are sons, you are daughters, you are secure. And I want to end with the most critical part of this chapter. Look back at verses 5 and 6 with me. Watch this. If you've tuned me out, or if you're sleeping in your mind, or actually sleeping, wake up, listen up, okay? This is so important. Verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Trust God how much? All you need is the amount of faith as a mustard seed. Did you know that a mustard seed is only one to two, not centimeters, millimeters in diameter? In diameter. One to two millimeters. I can't even quite show you what that is with my fingers. But mustard seeds produce a tree that was one of the largest trees at the time. Jesus is saying, you only need a little bit of trust. And this might even go against of some things that you've been taught or thought in your walk with Jesus. But hear him well. Hear how amazing the grace of God is that all you need is as much trust as a mustard seed. Trust God with other people's shortcomings, if only a little bit. And Jesus says, I'll take that from there. I can, I can work with that. I can run with that. You're having a hard time forgiving that person and walking in forgiveness with that person. Do you trust me just a little bit with that? Yeah, I, I guess I do. And Jesus goes, I can, I can handle, I guess I do. I'll take that from there and grow that. How incredible is that? How, how merciful is that? We don't deserve that. Trust God with your reward, even just a little bit, and he'll take it from there. Maybe you're just a little too obsessed with the rewards you're going to get. Okay, I, I can handle that. I'll take it from there. Trust God with your blessings. If only a little bit. Maybe you're just really clinging on to the stuff of this world, and Jesus is like, just, just trust me a little more with that, and I can run with that. I can take that from there. He's saying, trust me 
with my return, if just a little bit. Here's, here's the point in these verses. And it's counterintuitive. Your reluctant, half-hearted, okay, God, I trust you is enough. Why? Because it's not about the size of your faith and it's not about the size of your trust. It never was. It's about the size of your God. It's about the size and amazing, unending fountain of grace and mercy that Jesus has on people like you and me who are so needy and so desperate for his grace every moment. Bring your nothing and he'll bring his everything. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you. Thank you for this, I mean, almost too good to be reality that all we need is just a little bit of trust. So Lord, that's what we give you this morning. We're not here to make audacious claims that we're going to trust you no matter what. Yeah, it's going to be hard. And that's our desire of our hearts is to trust you no matter what. But Lord, in those moments where it's just hard to trust you, help us to just trust you to even give us that trust. Give us the faith to trust you. Give us the faith to believe you, God. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you guys stand with us?